Zigzag and One, a place where we honestly discuss how to embrace the zigs and the zags in our crazy lives. Running away is not an option. Living in defeat is not an option. Instead, learning how to keep moving forward is what we'll do together, one nugget of wisdom at a time. Your host is Melanie Brown. She's navigated a few zigs and zags in her life with the determination to never give up. Expect great stories and lots of laughs. Are you ready? Let's do it. Hello. Welcome to Zigzag and One. I'm Melanie Brown. I'm so glad you could join us for the first episode of 2019. I've titled this episode, The Human Trafficking Crisis, because January is National Slavery and Human Trafficking Awareness Month. My guest today is Casey McClure. She is the founder and executive director of Forsera. Forsera is an Atlanta-based ministry that empowers change in the lives of women and children working in the sex industry. Recently, I heard her share her testimony at a ministry brunch. It was amazing. She is a powerhouse of a woman. She knows and understands the women and children she works with because she's been there. She turned what could have destroyed her into a ministry that truly impacts the lives of women and children who are hurting. Too much distance kept Casey and I from recording this episode in person, so we spoke on the phone. I couldn't pass up the opportunity to learn from such a knowledgeable woman. You are going to be so glad to meet Casey McClure. Today we have Casey McClure of Forsera with us to discuss the human trafficking crisis in America. Her passion and hard work through her ministry, Forsera, is having a major impact on the lives of women and children in the Atlanta area who have been exploited in human trafficking. Casey, I can't wait till we get to the part of the show when you're going to share details about Forsera and all the amazing things your ministry is doing. I'm so excited you could join us during National Human Slavery and Sex Trafficking Awareness Month. Welcome, my friend. Thanks for having me. All right, let's jump in as there's so much to share about this topic. Please describe the various types of human trafficking, because as you know, some listeners might not be aware and realize the wide scope of this national and international crisis. Well, first, I just want you to know that um, human trafficking happens all across the U.S. It's not just an international problem. It is a local Georgia problem. It's everywhere um, within all the different cities and across the world where young girls, there could be runaways, they could be just living at home and mom and dad have the perfect home environment and still get exposed to this type of lifestyle. Um, and sometimes it's by choice, but a lot of times they are forced into this or coerced into this. We have worked with girls that were runaways. They grew up in the foster care system and they grew, you know, um, grew out of um, the foster care system and ended up, you know, hitting the streets at 18 years old with um, no family support, nobody to help them, and they end up falling prey to a trafficker. We've had girls as young as 14 years old that were, you know, prostituting and selling themselves online and was being forced to work in the sex industry. And we've had girls that were, you know, in their 40s and 50s 
that did this because maybe their husband lost their job and they end up, you know, having to struggle. And so they made a, you know, a decision to go into the sex industry. And next thing you know, they're involved with a pump and a pump is forcing them to do, you know, sexual services for the benefit of the pimp and not for the girl or the, you know, the woman. Mm-hmm. Um, we dealt with women that um, basically started, you know, prostituting at the age of 14 and 15 before they even knew the word trafficking, that it, before it even existed. And then they end up, you know, you know, they're in the industry for 25 years. And they go and make a decision to try to get help. But by then, they're addicted to heroin. They have, you know, HIV. um, Or they're just, you know, they don't have any other avenues to support themselves. And so they continue to down that path because that's all they know. Yeah, it sounds like a very, very complex issue. It is very complex. And once you get a victim, there's so many, every victim has a different story. And... Some of them are very horrific, but you have to kind of like peel off the different layers of each girl to even get to, um, to even begin to try to help them. There's just so many different things that they go through that we have to deal with before we can even decide what's going to be the next step for this victim. Wow. You know, it's really hard for me to hear you describe this human trafficking in the crisis, and you're right, it's here in Atlanta, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Um, I, I guess as I've learned more and more about this this crisis, it's just hard for me to imagine that human beings treat other human beings this way. I, I just, it's so hard for me. Um, so I did a little research to prep for our interview, so let's take a minute to discuss some of the statistics. I read the sex trafficking, or the, excuse me, the sex industry is the largest and most profitable industry in the world. 13,000 adult videos are produced annually with a recorded $13 billion profit. Now, this part, if you're a sports enthusiast, this next statistic will be quite alarming. The porn industry makes more money than the National Football League, the National Basketball Association, and Major League Baseball combined. That, I know how much my, our tickets are when we go see a sporting event, and to think about all those tickets per year combined, and then think about the, the money that's made in the in the porn industry being far above that, that just is shocking. The sex trafficking industry pulls in an estimated $99 billion per year. That's just unbelievable. Okay, so for because you and I live in Atlanta, did you grow up in Atlanta? No, I actually grew up in Mobile, Alabama. Okay, but how, you've lived in Atlanta for a while. I moved here. Um, I started coming here in 1948, but I actually moved here and made this my home in 2001. Okay. Anyway, Atlanta is our home right now, and sadly, Atlanta leads the way in the amount of cash transacted through the sex industry with a net worth of $200 million. $290 million annually. And again, another statistic that's quite alarming. According to the Urban Research Institute, more money is transacted through the sex industry than through the drug and gun industries combined. So all these other things that we focus on, um, sporting events and the money that goes into that and then the, the drug issue and the gun issues, 
um, it, it just pales in comparison, and that's such an alarming thing to, to read and to know about. One of the things that I learned that I did not like learning is that Interstate I-20 that runs from east to west across Georgia is called the Sex Trafficking Superhighway. I watched the video, and I saw that you were in a video about this as well, about um, the interstate used to be a symbol of freedom to travel from place to place, and now Interstate 20 is a symbol of the slavery epidemic in America. Uh, tell me what you know about Atlanta's human trafficking industry since you started being involved in it in 2005. Well, definitely, um, the interstate definitely plays a factor, but it's also not just Interstate 20, the Interstate 75 and 85. Um, we are no an essential, like it is a central, Atlanta is a central city, popular city that you can get, go through to get to basically anywhere in the South. Um, you can get to Tennessee, you can get to Alabama, you can get to South Carolina, North Carolina. It's just everybody comes through here um, because it's the big city. And I remember when I first came to Georgia, I was so excited about coming to Six Flags and coming to see the big city. Um, but when I also got here, um, I realized, wait a minute, Atlanta has a ton of strip clubs. And when I first came to Georgia, you know, the conventions were just booming and the money, the economy was booming and the strip clubs were booming as well. But what I've noticed is through the years that the strip clubs are struggling, but online prostitution, because of the social media access, like you can create, you know, a profile in a matter of minutes and start selling yourself online. But through, you know, websites that used to kind of uh, solicit prostitution, which is Backpage.com, which has now been shut down. But oh, we didn't know that. Yeah, Backpage uh, was shut down last couple of months ago, about seven, eight months ago. And they ended it um, because the they confirmed that the CEO was basically there was child prostitution involved. There was tons of cases across the U.S. that was linked to Backpage.com. However... Most people think, oh, well, that page is shut down, and therefore there's no more human trafficking. That's not true. What happens is there's other websites that have copycat that page in Craigslist where they used to be able to go on and, you know, post an ad and create an ad to sell yourself. I mean, you could sell your car, your house, your dog. You can put your clothes on there. You can also sell your daughter if you want it to. Mm. But with that, um, when there's when prostitution is so easily available, the strip club starts suffering because the strip club used to be a place that you could go, and it was like a theater. You know, it was like the girls didn't touch you. It was just kind of, you know, for show. But as the years have progressed, girls in the strip club are having to work harder for their money now. Um, they're having to do... Um, sexual favors because they're competing with the online prostitution because a guy could say, hey, I want a 14-year-old girl and go online, go on a website like that page um, and pull up an ad and look for a young lady. I mean, because he can, you know, find any type of girl he wants online. All he has to do is go and search. And with that, 
comes younger girls that are saying, well, I want to be a prostitute because it looks glamorous. It looks um, very enticing. I don't have to go to college when I can go and be a prostitute and make all this money. But there's a dark side to the industry, and that's where the human trafficking side really plays a factor. But it becomes when it's not your choice anymore, when you're being forced to sleep with, you know, 30 men a day to make a temp money that you don't get to keep. And we deal with girls, so many, so many young ladies that are addicted to sex and are addicted to this lifestyle. And they're bouncing from hotel to hotel, state to state, and they can't even. They don't. They're they're surviving just for the night. They don't even have money for the next meal. Mm. And they will go and do car dates and have you know sex with men, and they don't even know where they're going to be tomorrow um, because they're just making. They're just surviving. They're just making enough to pay for another hotel room because they might be hooked on drugs or they might be giving their money to a pimp. And so that it's just so many times people think that this is a glamorous lifestyle because they see it on music videos and they see it on TV. It's like um, it it's promoted. Like, oh, if I have a big butt and if I show, you know, do a sex tape, that's what movie stars promote. And that's what our young girls are seeing. So they think, why not be a prostitute? I get paid for it. And then the next thing you know, they're getting STDs. They're living on the street. Um they're getting beat up by their pimp. They're, in, you know, they're getting arrested for prostitution, and they're having prostitution charges on their record for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And they can't go work a normal job with a prostitution charge because they're people are going to say they're going to ask questions like, "What's on your background?" Right. And it, right. it's so heartbreaking because we're seeing now we're mothers that we have helped. We're now seeing their children grow going into this lifestyle. And are excited about it. They might, they know what their mother's been through. They know their mother's been a prostitute and been homeless and living in hotels and getting beat up by men. But we've got young girls that are now turning 18 that says, you know what, my mom did it and she's okay. I'm going to do it. And so it is just a generational curse that has to stop. You have to do something about it. That is heartbreaking to hear. Oh my goodness. It is very heartbreaking. It is, it is, when we see that, um, we should just, I, it, it, my heart just bleeds for them because I'm like, you know, you see, you know, you don't want to be your mother, but you're becoming your mother. Yeah. And then when you see the mother, she's trying to make, um, make better decisions and try to go down the right path. And then she's seeing her, you know, 15 year old daughter making these bad decisions. And she doesn't know how to help her because she's like, what can I say? I did it, and mm-hmm. I don't want her to do it. But it just, you know, is that that is what gets me the most. Out of all of the stories is when I see their daughters and their daughters want to go down that path. I can see why you would think that. If we could transition just a little bit, could you share about the zigzags or the struggles, as as we call them, in your own life that have led you to be passionate about the human trafficking crisis? Well, definitely. Um, I was a victim of child molestation. My father molested me and my sister and my brother. I was a runaway. I ran away at the age of 15, dropped out of school. 
I never went back home. I had bounced from, you know, from house to house. And it just got, you know, I tried to do the right thing, but I just didn't have a good um, support system from my mother. Like, I wanted to finish high school, and I see so many girls that we work with that are now in their 40s, and they're having to get their GED or get their high school diplomas just so they can go to the next stage in life and get a degree. And I, it, I'm reminded each time I see a young lady that is going through that, it encourages me when I encourage her because I wish somebody was there to encourage me mm-hmm. to say, finish, get your GED, don't drop out of school, go back to school, you can become something, don't settle. And when you start seeing these, these women make those choices in life, it just you want to do it for the next one. You want to keep doing it. Even if they're, you know, even if they struggle, um, and even if they make a decision to go back to the industry, even if we've helped them for a minute, we still just try to be their friends um, and let them know, hey, you know, we're not here to judge you. Only by the grace of God am I not in that life. Am I not dead? And that's what reminds me every day because I see so much of, them and when I would when I look at their story and or hear their story and I look at them and I see the path that they're on, I'm thankful that God really called me out of that. And so what did he call you out of? So I started stripping at the age of eighteen. My sister started stripping at the age of seventeen to support herself. And I basically got into it because I, you know, I was on my own. I didn't have any support financially from anybody. And I got into stripping and I danced for almost six years um, and just got caught up in the fast life. And I'm thankful, though, I'm out of it, but I'm, I'm glad I went through it because I'm able to help other girls see their, that what they've been through can be used for something good. And so right. that is what keeps me passionate about this because I could be gone tomorrow. I could die. God could take me tomorrow. But if I'm helping other women that have been through it, it's like, it's contagious. Like if I help a woman, she's going to want to help a woman and it's yes. just going to carry on for generations. And that's how you make change. So what made you decide one day, Hey, I've had enough. I want to get out of this. My grandmother died. Um, in 2003, in that same year, my grandmother died. My brother got arrested with trafficking crystal meth, and my boyfriend broke up with me. And I was just at a low point in my life. And at her funeral, they were singing Amazing Grace at my grandmother's funeral. And I loved my grandmother so much. But um, she, when she died, it took a, a part of my life. Like, I was just like, she was the only person in my life that was solid. And so I started asking God, like, am I going to die just being a stripper? I wanted to I wanted to become something. Because when you're just a stripper, you're labeled as just a stripper. People don't respect you. Mm-hmm. And they, they talk down to you. And I knew that I wanted to be something and do something with my life. And nope. so that's basically whenever I made that transition in 2004. I'm sorry, 2003 is when I walked away from the life. And I just knew that God had something bigger and better for me. And he has. Yes. He definitely has. So tell me about that that transition when you were fighting to overcome. 
Like, I know it's not one day you walk out of the strip club and the next day you're financially stable. Can, can you share a little bit about that that time period? Well, I started dating a guy that I had met while I was stripping in the strip club. And I started spending a lot of time with him. And one day we were going to church. He invited me to his church. I had already felt the talk about going to church. I knew um, I was very intimidated by the churches in Atlanta. And he had went to a smaller church in Conyers, Georgia. So he invited me to his church. And through that, I kind of kept going. I was stripping still and going to church. And one day I was driving into work to look at the pink pony. And it just came over me that I was going to quit. I'm just, I I don't want to do this anymore. And I called my boyfriend at the time. He's now my husband. And I said, what would you do if I quit? And he's like, it would be hard, but you can do it. And so I said, well, let me think about it. So I went on to the club, got dressed. But that night in the club, most of the times in the strip clubs, it's smoky and just crowded and just nasty. There's just a feel. You feel in the club. But that night, it was empty. There was a hardly anybody in the club, and it was just not smoky. It was just a clear inside the club. And it was just like, it just came over me that I was just done. And so I went, and I packed myself, and I walked out. I left. But when I left out, I mean, I quit cold turkey. Like, I, I still had bills. I didn't know how I was going to pay my bills. I was just done. Um and I had said for three years, each year I kept saying, I'm going to quit, I'm going to quit, I'm going to quit. Those are like my New Year's resolutions. Mm-hmm. But here this was in the middle of July, in the summer, you know, I'm sitting there just quitting and had no plan. I had no plan whatsoever. And I walked away from that club, and when I left that night, I felt complete freedom. It was That's like amazing. a weight was lifted off of me. And my whole mindset was like, I've tried the drugs, I've tried the alcohol, why not try God? And that was what basically kept me going. I stayed in church, and I was struggling because the bill collector started calling me. Mm-hmm. And I was um, tempted to go back. I was I was detoxing. I had to detox from that lifestyle. And I would lock myself in the closet and cry um, because I was so... Um, I wasn't hooked on drugs or alcohol. I mean, I did that stuff, but I was addicted to the money. It was like fast money. And mm-hmm. it was my survival. And so whenever I was in the closet crying, um, I was just, I mean, I was just detoxing. I was just like, it was such a struggle to make that transition into really, I said I gave up the life, but it, you don't realize, well, wait till the bill collectors start calling. Wait till, you you know, your car breaks down. You don't have any money to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really, I threw my hands up to God one night during that transition, and I just told him, he's going to have to help me for myself because <laughs> I was about to go back. I was about to go back to the industry, and that's when I found out I was pregnant with my daughter, Sarah. Okay. So that's where for Sarah was first. Um we ended up, we weren't married, and we, you know, I had her eyes red a lot, but God blessed that. And I just kept, I, while I was pregnant, God gave me a vision of four Sarah. And just from there, um, we started doing strip club outreaches, and we've grown since then. Well, you transitioned right into my next question, so so thank you for that. So tell me how four Sarah got started. I think, I think I read it was 2005. 
Yeah. Okay. And so, then talk about what Coursera is about and then the programs that you do. Mm-hmm. So we actually started in – so my daughter was born in 2004. And two weeks um, after my daughter was born, my grandfather, who was a buyer, he would buy prostitutes. I grew up around my grandmother and my um, grandfather. They were in and out of – they were in my life most of my life. But um, my grandfather had a secret. He would buy prostitutes. And my grandmother died in 2002. And then my grandfather was murdered in 2004 while he was with the prostitute. So from that point on, yeah, so from that point on, I just kind of, God was just inspiring me and giving me purpose. He gave me purpose. And through that, I realized, well, I've got to help these women. Like, my sister was still in it at the time. My brother even danced at Swing and Richards. And, you know, we, everybody, all my friends were all strippers. And so when I started for Sarah, God just gave me a vision while I was pregnant with Sarah. And then through that, we once I gave birth to her, I started acting on it. And so we started going to strip clubs in 2004. And through that, we became official with the IRS in 2005. And then after, as we kept doing outreaches, we realized, well, there's more than just outreaches. You know, we've got to partner with organizations that can offer housing, um, because at the time we were not offering housing. And we built relationships with other organizations that could offer long-term residential housing for them. And so we would go on outreaches and give gift bags to the girls in the strip clubs. And then through that, I realized, well, wait a minute, there's girls on the street. There's girls prostituting online. And so we just started reaching out to all girls in the sex industry, whether they were there by choice or whether they were there because um, they were forced to be in it. And then through that, we, you know, in our intervention program, so if a girl calls our hotline, we would have a conversation with her and find out what's going on. Sometimes they're not ready to leave. Sometimes they're just looking for someone to listen to them. And so we would build that relationship and that, um, that friendship with them and encourage them to make that transition. And when they made that transition is when we would pick them up and take them to a program. And then we also have a care team um, where we would get volunteers that want to be a part of this to help women, and they would come on board and they would be like a mentor to a girl and help her, might help her with her resume. They might just spend time with her. They might have to just take her to the doctor. Um, They might have to help babysit her kids. So a care team member would come and just basically be um, a friend to the girls while they're transitioning. And sometimes they're neither they don't transition, they just, you know, they just want somebody there on the other side to help, you know, to be on that journey with them. And then we also um, have a scholarship program. So our scholarship program consists of, um, we give out quarterly scholarships, and it's two women in the sex industry. I was a high school dropout. So many of the girls that we work with are high school dropouts or their college dropouts. And we just encourage them to think about, what do you want to do when you get out of the industry? Because you can't be doing this for the rest of your life. And so we just try to help them um, be creative and figure out, you know, what is a good thing that they what what it motivates them. You know, that some girls are going to school to be dentists, some are going to become psychiatrists, some are going. We had a young lady that uh, went and got trained on clown clown ministry. Like interesting. She, yeah. So there's different. 
lifestyle that these girls come from and different things, backgrounds that motivates them. And so we don't put it all in one basket. You know, we're like, what, what do you want to do? The only thing that we don't, that we don't support is bartending and massage therapy. Okay. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Hell, you do a really amazing things with poor Sarah. And I know you've got other things that you've got going on right now. So yeah. I'm looking at my notes and we're only halfway through them, Casey. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could continue this in part two. You okay with that? Yeah, I am perfectly fine with that. All right. So listeners, you don't want to miss part two coming soon. Stay tuned.